Hello, Gold Avenue Church. We are journeying on in our Go and Make Disciples series. Today we're moving to Thought Unit 8 of the Gospel Tool. So two weeks ago, as I preached on the Tower of Babel, we explored the way in which humanity was characterized by an orphan spirit as we look for safety, security, and significance outside of God. Last week, Pastor Jalisa took us deeper in our understanding of the effects of this orphan spirit. Reviewing the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, we were reminded that our search for security, for safety, for significance, it often leads us into deeply sinful actions. Impatience, pride, deceit, jealousy, murderous revenge. Those were all on display last week as she looked at the story of Joseph and his brothers. Well, today we're going to explore the way in which these sins have an even deeper consequence than we might imagine. Not only can they create patterns of bondage to the sin itself, but they also bring us into bondage to Satan, the one whose nature we are imaging as we rebel. So before we open God's word and read the thought unit, let's open in prayer. Lord, your word says that the reason you came into the world was to destroy the devil's work. So we pray that you'd use this preaching of your word to do just that today, that you'd move in power, Holy Spirit, to draw us to Jesus, to apply Jesus' victory at the cross in our lives, and as you taught us to pray, to deliver us from evil. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thought Unit 8. Rather than declaring God's glory, advancing God's intentions, and exercising God's loving rule, we've come under the influence of Satan, the ultimate rebel and ruler of this dark world. By our pride, deception, greed, and rebellion, we position ourselves to be oppressed. We are truly in bondage to our sins as well as to Satan. And then our text for this morning comes from 1 Samuel 16, 14 to 23. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 to 23. I'm not going to give a context because I'll explain it once I begin the message. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, 
and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son, David, who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to begin by acknowledging something that may initially be very difficult for us to understand. Of the five references to an evil spirit which is afflicting Saul, in this text, four of them say that the evil spirit came, quote, from the Lord, or, quote, from God. We might immediately wonder, how can this be? If God is only and purely good, how can it be that God would actually send an evil spirit who brings torment? Does this somehow go against God's nature? Well, this is an important question, and it's one that we I promise we'll return to, but I don't want to start here, because Saul's story doesn't start here. See, Saul's the first king of Israel. After a very dark period in Israel's history, God raises up a prophet named Samuel, who leads God's people back to fearing or reverencing the Lord and obeying him. And as Samuel nears old age, the people ask him, Would you please anoint a king over us so that we can be like all the other nations? Well, Samuel's offended, and he shares this with God, and God says, It's not you they're rejecting, but me. And eventually God says, Okay, listen to them and give them a king. Well, next, God gives clear guidance to Samuel that a certain man, whom Samuel's never met, is on his way the next day, and that Samuel should anoint this man to be king. Well, the scene plays out just as God describes. And as Samuel shares God's intention with this man, Saul, Saul timidly speaks out his insecurities. Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing? After a meal, Samuel takes Saul up on the roof of his house, and the two men talk all night. As Saul gets ready to leave in the morning, Samuel anoints him with oil, and then with prophetic insight given by God, Samuel shares a detailed description of exactly what Saul will experience as he travels home. What happens to Saul, exactly as Samuel describes, especially including Saul's meeting a company of prophets. As he's on his way home and they meet, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul in power and he joins the prophets 
in their prophesying. Now you would think that the fulfillment of such an incredibly detailed prophecy and having the Spirit of God come upon him in power would not only deeply encourage Saul, but would also function as a sign to him that God's actually or indeed called him and will be with him. However, that doesn't seem to be the case when Samuel next gathers the people of Israel together to declare Saul king in their presence. Remember, he's already anointed him, but now he's going to declare him king in their presence. Saul actually has to be dragged out of hiding from among the baggage. He's hiding in the bags. So even as he's like catapulted into the kingship, his insecurity seems to be raging strong. And it doesn't take long for that insecurity to affect his leadership. So a battle with their Philistine neighbors is brewing. And after a week of camping out across from them, Saul's troops are quaking with fear. Meanwhile, Samuel has told Saul, wait for me at Gilgal till the seventh day, and then I'll come and I'll offer a sacrifice to God. Well, on the morning of the seventh day, there's no Samuel in sight, and his men are fleeing the camp. And so Saul takes decides he's going to take matters into his own hands, and he offers the sacrifice himself. The offering is still burning when Samuel arrives, and he rebukes Saul for his foolishness and his lack of faith. Samuel tells him, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That's painful. But I want us to notice this. God is actually very gracious. God does not immediately take away Saul's kingship. God does not exclude Saul from his covenant people or from salvation. God doesn't even take away the anointing of his Holy Spirit from Saul here. He simply tells him that his consequence for disobeying his order through Samuel is that his leadership or his kingdom won't endure. This is not rejection. It's a real painful consequence that invites and creates an opportunity for real repentance. But that repentance doesn't seem to come. And in fact, Saul seems to be moving in the opposite direction of repentance. How do we know that? Well, next, God gives Saul specific commands for Israel's next battle that include completely destroying all animals and property belonging to the Amalekites. So Samuel shows up as the battle ends, only to hear bleeding sheep and lowing cattle. Saul has not only spared the best of the sheep and cattle, but then we're told he's also erected a monument in his own honor seems like Saul's insecurity has deepened, erecting a monument in his honor. It also seems like his heart has fallen into deception. Saul actually fools himself into believing that he's obeying the Lord. He claims to Samuel, he claims he kept the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to God. 
but Samuel and God will have none of it. And this time, Saul is truly rejected as king. Samuel's words must have cut like a knife. This is what he says. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Immediately following this, God directs Samuel to anoint David, son of Jesse, as king. And the text says, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And now, I hope, we can begin to understand why this evil spirit is allowed to torment Saul. It's not because God began with injurious intent towards Saul. Remember, God chose him. God gifted him. God anointed him. God even put his spirit upon him for leadership. So we got to say God had good plans for Saul. God had good desires for Saul, just like he does for you and me. But Saul's insecurity and Saul's fear of failure and of rejection influence him to rebel against God's clear commands. And as God has just said, he considers rebellion like the sin of divination. Divination is turning to the occult or the demonic realm to seek knowledge of the future or the unknown. So in other words, to rebel against God's commands is like turning to God's enemy, Satan, and embracing him. And when you reject God through disobedience and you embrace his enemy through your obedience to him, you are always opening yourself to the possibility of oppression by enemy spirits. You see, as image bearers, we always reflect something. We either reflect the image and the glory of God as we obey him, or we reflect the image and the depravity of sin and Satan as we obey him. There is no neutrality just want to repeat that. There is no neutrality. And so as Saul reflects Satan through his rebellion, he's actually opening himself up to and welcoming the oppression of an evil spirit. So when the text says from the Lord or from God, it means God's allowing this spirit to afflict Saul by removing his hand of protection. God's allowing the natural result of Saul's rebellion to take effect immediately. And friends, you and I are not immune to this. Whether before we're in Christ or after, our disobedience of God's commands opens us up to the possibility of oppression by evil spirits. This is in part what Paul's referring to when he says to the Ephesians, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Well, a foothold 
is a place to begin to operate from. It's a base camp. It's a landing spot. It's an occupied territory. So the footholds that we can give or the doors that we can open for evil spirits to afflict us, well, they're as many as the sins we might commit. Our sexual immorality, our lust, our deceit, our pride, our criticism, our self-righteousness, our rage, our fear, our unbelief, our unforgiveness, our involvement with any false religion or ideology, our belief, or even our belief of lies. All of these, in many, many more, can give footholds or occupied spaces for evil spirits to afflict us. Any rebellion against God's good commands that's not followed by repentance opens the door for possible oppression. So how might we know if an evil spirit's afflicting us in any way, shape, or form? Well, an easy test is to look for the fruit. The Bible gives a very clear description of the fruit that's produced by the Holy Spirit which we can use to contrast with the fruit that evil or unclean, unholy spirits would produce. The Bible says the Holy Spirit brings repentance and genuine, godly sorrow for sin. But the Holy Spirit doesn't berate or beat up. The Holy Spirit ministers grace and peace as we acknowledge our sins. The Holy Spirit produces genuine love for God, for others, and fills with deep joy. The Holy Spirit causes faithfulness. The Holy Spirit gives patience and helps exercise self-control. He brings gentleness and kindness and goodness, which all reflect God's nature and character. In short, the Holy Spirit attracts us to Christ, inspires faith in Christ, unites us to Christ, fills us with the Father's love, and brings all the safety, security, and significance that we need. Or if we want to use different words, Paul summarizes it this way to the church at Rome. He says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. In other words, you come into the kingdom through faith in Jesus and he makes you righteous. He cleans you up. He gives you a new heart, a new spirit, makes you right before God, but he also gives you a hunger for ongoing righteousness and holiness. And he fills you with joy at what you've received and who you've become in Christ. And he gives you an enduring peace The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit. And so anything short of this, anything short of it in our lived experience results from the influence of our old sinful nature and at times the work or the oppression of evil spirits, which is why Paul tells the Romans, be transformed By the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Be changed as your mind is made new. Why? Because it's only as we learn to perceive the height 
and the depth of God's loving intentions for each of us that we begin to discern each of the ways that our experience doesn't measure up and that we're able to then actually discern the fruit of evil or unholy spirits at work upon us or others. Spirits that foster fear and anxiety that we pass off as just normal for life in this world. No, they're not normal for a Christian. God has higher for us. He is different for us. Righteousness, joy, and peace. Spirits that foster lust and insecurity, that foster shame and condemnation, secrecy and deceit, bitterness and resentment, depression and doubt, doubt of God's love, doubt of God's word, doubt of God's goodness, the very same things the serpent himself was whispering in the garden. You see, there's no end to Satan's deceit. And unfortunately, no end to the manner of footholds that can be given to him, even in the lives of Christians. Now, let me be clear. A Christian can never be possessed by an evil spirit. We belong to the Lord. We belong to him. We are joined to him. And as his spirit takes up residence within our spirit, that place becomes like the Holy of Holies. Nothing impure can enter. But within our bodies and our souls, our minds, emotions, and will, there's plenty of room for oppression or for affliction, which is in part why Paul so strongly warns the Ephesian believers that our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So early on in this book in Ephesians 2, Paul had made clear that before we came to faith in Christ, we were in bondage to these spirits. By our sins and through our rebellion, we'd serve them. And they were absolutely able to hold our sins over our heads and condemn us because we were legally indebted to them. They could read our secret files. They could tell us every sin we'd ever committed. They could hold those sins against us. They could condemn us as sinners. They could whisper, you're a doubting coward. You're a lusting pervert. You're a critical jerk. You're a lying cheat. You're a greedy snob. You're proud. You're independent. You're unforgiving. You're bitter. And the charges that they'd be making would be true. And the shame would be justified and the oppression would be earned. But, but Jesus destroyed the power they held over us. And so in a couple of weeks, Pastor Jalisa will teach us more about Jesus' work of overthrowing and destroying the power of Satan and of these spirits. But for right now, we're hearing Paul say in Ephesians 6, he says, to combat these spirits... You need to armor up. You need to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. You need to put on the full armor of God. And as he details that armor, every single piece of it points to Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished at the cross. Paul says, as you armor up, as you clothe yourself in Christ in what He's accomplished, you do this by faith, he says, then you'll be able to stand firm and resist the work of evil. The onslaught of any and all demonic spirits. And then he says these all-important words. Pray in the Spirit or with the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Be alert 
and always keep on praying for all the saints. Prayer is the context within which we stand against dark influences coming against us. Prayer, friends, is the context in which we take our stand in the one who is the victor on the cross and praying for one another, we call on Jesus' power and Jesus' presence to bring release, to bring freedom, to bring healing from the effects of tormenting spirits. And friends, I believe that in God's grace and his mercy, he was actually providing a context for this to happen for Saul. The text says that whenever Saul was tormented, David would take his harp or his lyre and he'd play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Worship is like sung prayer. Worship by those who love and honor God invites the presence of God and causes evil spirits to flee. You know, many people don't understand why they feel so good when they come to worship, why they feel lighter and more joyful and less anxious and many other things. But then when they leave the context of corporate worship, they experience their feelings and their moods and their struggles return to pre-worship levels. Well, that's because worship brings the presence of God and worship and prayer create a context in which Jesus really meets us and Jesus is really present to bring healing and deliverance if, if we deal with the underlying roots and reasons for our oppression. James says it this way, if anyone has sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. As David played his harp and worshipped, it seems like God may have been offering Saul an opportunity to experience freedom and release from his bondage if only he would recognize the presence of the Lord and repent. It also seems that Saul chose temporary relief, like going to a worship service and leaving without actually changing, without actually addressing what's underneath. seems like Saul chose temporary relief rather than humble himself fully before God. But that did not have to be Saul's choice, and that does not have to be our choice. Like Saul, God has callings. God has giftings. God has anointings for each one of us. We're special to him. And he has kingdom purpose for us. And God doesn't want our, our unhealed wounds to lead to unconfessed sins which block or abort the flow of his good purpose. That's not his desire. God's strong desire is our healing and our deliverance from all oppression so that we can grow up as his sons and his daughters and so that we can grow into our gifts and our callings and so that we can share in his joy as we lead others to the freedom that is in Jesus. 
Friends, I won't tell you anybody's personal story today, but I will tell you that I have prayed with hundreds of people who've experienced relief, freedom, deliverance, lightning, as they brought their struggles and sins to the Lord. And so I want to close by asking, where might God be stirring in you as you listen to this message? Is he highlighting an area of your life where there's a consistent lack of fruit of his Holy Spirit? Is he revealing an area where you seem to be constantly needled by the kingdom of darkness? Is he identifying a foothold or even a stronghold in your thought life that doesn't conform to his truth? If he's doing this, he's doing it in love because he wants to lead you in the context of prayer. He wants to lead you into freedom, into healing, into deliverance, and into the fullness of his good plans and purposes that Ephesians says he's planned in advance for you. So whatever the Holy Spirit's showing, I want to invite you to share it with others. Share it with a pastor. Share it with an elder. Share with your discipleship group. Share with a Christian friend. Email prayer.goldav at gmail.com to ask for prayer ministry on Zoom or in person. And let Jesus Christ bring you into the fullness of the freedom that he purchased for you. Let's thank him and praise him now. Lord, we thank you for your incredible mercy, your incredible grace, your deep, deep love, and the sacrifice that you went through in order to purchase our redemption, our complete deliverance from bondage to sin and to evil and to to any of the work of oppressing spirits. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are uh, bringing new hope for many of us about the continued work of freedom that you're going to bring, deliverance. And we pray that you'd now give us the courage to share, as you've called us to share, the courage to bring things to light, the courage to bring things to you, Lord, and that you would effect mighty, mighty healing and deliverance. Lord, take us from glory to glory, as your word says. Strengthen us. Strengthen everyone who listens to this message in their inner being with the power of your love, Lord Jesus, and cause us all to be able to stand, to be able to stand, and to to be able to worship and glorify you for your good work in our hearts and lives and through us, Lord, and through us in others' lives. We love you. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.